Special thanks to all of you for making us the top number 36 Latino show in the nation. That's right, in the last two weeks, we have climbed four levels. Welcome to another episode of Latinos Who Thrive. I'm your host, Victor Escalante, and I'm truly honored to have you join us today. If you're new to the show in this podcast series, we shine a spotlight on the diverse and vibrant Latino community, a community that has contributed immeasurably to culture, innovation, and progress. Through captivating conversations, we delve into the experiences, struggles, and triumphs that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. From entrepreneurs, artists, to activists, and scientists, our guests represent the tapestry of the backgrounds and passions. They faced adversity head-on, persevered through hardships, and harnessed their unique perspectives to not only achieve personal success, but to also make a positive impact on the world around them. As we listen to their stories, we'll uncover the common threads that weave together the fabric of success, resilience, determination, and an unwavering belief in the power of dreams. We'll explore the pivotal moments that pushed them to their limits, the mentors who guided them, and the lessons they've learned along the way. Latinos Who Thrive is more than just a podcast. It's a celebration of the relentless spirit that resides within each one of us. It's a note to the beauty of diversity and testament to the strength that arises when cultures and dreams intersect. So join us for this heartfelt conversation and share with others to not only uplift and inspire, but also serve as a reminder that no dream is too big and no obstacle is insurmountable. As we embark on this enriching journey, let's celebrate the stories of Latinos who have not only thrived, but continue to flourish, leaving an indelible mark on the world. Thank you for tuning in to Latinos Who Thrive, stories of resilience and success. What a great show we have for you today. Ruth Rivera is a personal injury and business litigator with the prestigious Tony Busby Law Firm. She is going to talk to us about her journey as a first-gen Latina born to undocumented parents and her relentless drive to be the best she can be and how she's working to overcome the imposter syndrome. So let's get on with it. And now we have Ruth Rivera with the Tony Busby Law Firm. Ruth, welcome to Latinos Who Thrive. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so excited to be here. How are you this morning? I'm well, thank you. <laughs> so let's go ahead and dive into our story for today. Tell us the through line, Ruth, of how you got into the legal field. Okay, so this is actually very interesting. I don't remember when I decided I wanted to be a lawyer because it's been that long. You know, when I went to pre-K and they were like, what do you want to be? I was like, a lawyer, a lawyer, a lawyer. So I told my mom, where did I get that idea from? I, I don't even remember. It's always like what I wanted to be. And she's like, your tia Elvira, you would spend summers with her in Mexico. And she said that you were so argumentative. You always had something back to say to her. She, so she told you, you should be a lawyer because you always have something to say. You're always going to argue, et cetera. So she's like, she's told you that since you were like three. I think that's where you got it from. So... <laughs> I okay. guess from being an annoying child, my aunt was like, you should be a lawyer. Where are your parents originally from? Mexico. So my dad's family is from Michoacan and my mom's family is from Tampico and they were each born in that respective part of Mexico. And growing up, um, you know, both of my parents are refinery workers and my dad um, has lived in construction. 
So in order to obviously help financially with childcare, that was in the San Mexico every summer. So we would go to Tampico. Uh, so I grew up going to Tampico every year from when I was like two, three to until I was like 12 or 13 when things got, got a little dangerous in Mexico, unfortunately. But yeah, so I love Tampico. Enemy truck and I just visited for the first time uh, last summer, but both of my parents were born there and then uh, they came to the States and they were um, illegal immigrants most of my life. So you are representative of the new breed of Latinos that are young, they're educated, and they're deeply grounded in their culture and in their background. Tell me, how did being grounded in your culture in Mexico, being immersed in that culture, traditions, flavors, colors, music, how did that influence your mindset uh, that you currently bring to the courtroom or you bring to the office? See, I think it's funny because I think my parents, so both of them, they love America. They love being here. But, and I've noticed this with a lot of, you know, people who are born in Mexico here, they love Mexico. And I think you have to go there and realize like what it's about. It's the people. It's, you know, like you said, the culture, like everybody's going to help each other. Everybody's going to keep each other in the loop. Everybody's like, there's always a lending hand. Even people don't have money they figure it out. There's a lot of, you know, neighborly love and it's just a very warm culture. And I think it takes really understanding like how Latinos are in function that helps you serve the community, right? So with clients and stuff, I, I always build like immediately, there's just like this relationship, like an aunt and uncle, or, you know, depending on the age uh, with my Latino clients, because there's just this like trust and I think it's helped me a lot that I have the cultural, like really background and also experience that I know how to speak to them. I know like mannerisms. I know all these things. Like to give you an example, one time I was preparing expert witnesses uh, for a case and this was like a insurance fraud case. It was my first year in practice and the experts were from Mexico and they, they came and I was the only Spanish speaking attorney. Uh, although, although there was like six, seven white men uh, attorneys representing the insurance companies and I was at that time representing the insurance company. It was a fraud case. And I, I noticed I was translating, helping prepare them. And then they were telling them like, you know, you're, you said that you were not like the expert or something like that. And in their face, they were just like, how do we explain it? They were saying Spanish. And I'm like, you know, what, it, what's, what's the problem here? Like, I think the word experts was throwing you off. Like I told them in Spanish and they were like, yeah, well in Mexico, that word means like this, like a judge has to qualify you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you are using it like that. And we feel uncomfortable because, you know, that's how it is in Mexico. And we just don't want to say that because we're not like a judge didn't tell us that we were the expert. So I noted that from their facial expressions, from like how they were struggling to like explain it to me, et cetera, that I kept pushing. And I was like, okay, something's not right here. So I think it really helps to know your people who you serve, the mannerisms or like, you know, sometimes people are embarrassed to say, oh yeah, like I, you know, uh, I'm illegal. But that's another big thing in my industry, right? If if they got in a car wreck or, you know, they were mistreated or, you know, they, they broke a, an arm at work, they don't want to sue because they're like, they don't want to tell me, but they're like, I'm illegal. Like, and, and I, I can't, and I always tell them like, you know, once I feel that sense, like, why wouldn't you want to sue somebody who hurt you? I said, just so you know, I'm not making any assumptions. You know, I grew up with parents who were illegal for most of my life. That has nothing to do with it. Right. So I think it helps me read people better because I've been around this culture that I have a certain instinct, I think. And I, and I have I make people feel comfortable because I can also draw from my experience. Hey, my parents were illegal. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's nothing, 
you know, let's just get it out in the open. So I think that's how it's helped me. Are you the youngest Latina lawyer with the Tony Busby law firm? Yes, Crystal's also a Latina lawyer, but she's older than me, but she may look younger than me. I, I need to get her. I'm still working on getting her face routine and her secrets because she just, she looks amazing, but she's a little bit older than me. <laughs> you look like a millennial. Yeah, I am. I am. I'm 30. Okay. Now, so talk to us about uh, in law school, what percentage of Latinos made up a year class? And the reason that I go there is because you, according to you, uh, out of 100 lawyers, there's only two Latinos in, that are going to, 2% of Latinos are going to be Hispanic or Latino uh, attorneys. So in law school, how many Latinos were in your class? So I think I was a little bit more fortunate than the, the general number. So the general number by the ABA is yes, uh, less than 2% of all attorneys in the U.S. are Latinos, Latino women, and then, you know, Latino men. So maybe between the both, less than four people, but Latina women, less than two. However, I went to U of H, University of Houston, here in Houston. Houston's the most diversity in the United States of America. So I was fortunate that I had a little bit more, no more than 10%, though, I would think. Um, pretty sure. But I mean, yeah, not a lot of people look like me. In your all. opinion, what's wrong with that? A lot's wrong with that because I think it it really prevents people from serving a large part of our community. Right. So if you and it's not that a Hispanic could better serve a client, I'm not saying that like a Hispanic client. But I think, like I mentioned before, <clears throat> when you have those experiences, you can probably grasp things faster or you can even have it the intuition to know things from the beginning or even before you even start the case. You're going to know certain things that are true to the Hispanic culture. And also your clients are probably going to be feel a little bit more comfortable with you because a you look like them they know that you have certain experiences like them so i think that the fact that we don't have a representative amount of attorneys i think unfortunately means that we're not serving that community that part of the community as well as we could be or we should be talk to us about your drives and your passions it's like what is it about your profession that really drives you and you're passionate about i went to law school wanting to wanting to help people you know, my mom, um, when I was, I think, four, she uh, was a victim of a medical malpractice. So I think a doctor removed her gallbladder and he forgot to leave some sort of drainage method. I'm not too sure on the mechanics, but point being that she kept going back to the hospital because she wasn't getting better. Uh, she, she, she was like, I really feel ill. Like I can't get up from bed. It's already been, a, you know, a day or two, et cetera. So she went back to the hospital and this was, I was four, you know, so this was like 26 years ago. She was, she would go in the Metro. She didn't have a car and she'd be like in the Metro with me and my sister, who's a year older, went back to the doctor two, three times. You have to remember 26 years ago, uh, there wasn't as many translators, interpreters available. So she was trying her best to kind of express to the nurses and the doctor, like, here's what's going on. I don't think it's normal, et cetera. And they kept sending her home. Oh, you're being dramatic. Go home, go home, go home. So then the third time she got to the hospital. Before she could even speak to them, she collapsed and uh, she had like an infection inside because they hadn't drained or left the drain drainage method. Again, I'm not sure on the mechanics. And it was, it ended up being, you know, the doctors on the doctor was like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's there afterwards. And my mom was just like, this is so, this is so unfair. This is just so I was trying to tell you, she just was very marked by that experience. And 
she told me, you know, I wanted to sue, but since I was illegal at that time, I thought what's going to happen to me? Like, what if like I sue and then the, the, the migra comes or, you know, the, the police, anything. And then I lose my babies because I'm trying to sue. So it's all these misconceptions. Right. And she told me that and it really, and she was in bed for months after that, like her recovery was very, very harsh. So to me, that was the, the driving force behind wanting to go to law school, because I thought, I don't want this to happen to other people. And there's still people out there who think that just because they're illegal or just because this or that, they can't sue. So, so to why me, don't you go ahead and educate us? It's like, legally, what are the rights of someone that's been injured, someone that is a victim of a crime? as far as uh, their rights that they have if they're undocumented? They have the same rights as an American citizen. Like they can, they can sue, you know, if you, if you were injured at work, let's say, and you know, you lost a finger, you lost, you know, you, you even not, not that extreme, but it's like, let's say that you get injured and you fell or whatever. And it's like at work or a car wreck or anything like that, you can sue just like anybody else can. And the thing is that now there's a lot of literature out there that says that the other side can get into your legal status. There's been like a lot of Latinos that have put in that work to say, hey, we're not going to let the jury be prejudiced by status, right? So now not only can you sue, but the fact that you're illegal isn't going to come up in the, in the trial. I mean, the other side's going to, of course, try, but you can, you can sue, you can everything, and you're not going to have, you know, uh, immigration in your door or a police officer, like none of that, you know, it, it's treated the same as anybody else suing. And not only that, but, you know, I know that there is prejudice out there with respect to status, immigration status, but, you know, the right attorneys know that the literature out there and will fight to not allow that to come in. Like I, I took a deposition. I mean, I presented a witness for a deposition and the other side was trying to ask, what's your social security number? Or like, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, no, like, you know, when did you become a, a resident? Things like that. And I shut it down. And I was like, that's harassment. We can end the deposition now if you want, but she's not answering anything about her legal status. Right. So you have to have the right advocate for sure that knows that literature can back it up. And I was willing to go before a judge and say, you know, judge, here's the literature on it. It's prejudicial. It's irrelevant. It's, you know, it's harassment, all these different things. But I think everybody should know that not everybody does, but the people should know that that's not something that can affect them it, and, and it won't. Okay. And so you're a fighter and an advocate for your clients. Yes, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Tell me, what is it like to go up against an Anglo older attorney in trial or in court? And what sort of stereotypes are you boxed into? Oh man, I, this is a huge, huge struggle in the legal industry. Um, I think that older attorneys always, the first thing they always tell me is, you know, I've been in practice since, since before you, since before you were born or, you know, well, I have done this like this for 15 years or, you know, things like that. I think that, um, you know, especially in my opinion, a lot of men, they see a woman and they think, okay, it's a woman, like she's probably not going to be as aggressive or, you know, not going to stand up to me. Or they'll try improper things like they'll um, start like in, in, in Texas, you can just say objection form. If they see that you're younger, they'll start saying the actual basis for their objection. So objection, they'll say things like, um, you know, objection, irrelevant, objection, blah, blah. And they'll say the actual basis because that kind of helps them coach their witness. 
And they'll do that to young lawyers because they think that a lot of young lawyers don't know that they can't be saying the specific basis, right? So I think it takes us a young lawyer, unfortunately, knowing all those things, knowing that people are going to mess with you to know, hey, this is what I can expect and be prepared for it. So I think for sure there's a lot of that, a lot of like bullying, mind games, uh, harassment to some extent. And you just have to be very, very like no nonsense from the very beginning. You know, I think when a, when an attorney tries to give me the base of their objection on my counsel, that's improper. You know that you can just say form. Please do not give the basis unless I ask you to give it. You know, and, and things like that. Like you just have to be very, 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 very like, you know, no, like there's no, no wiggle room. It's really hard because I don't like being that way. I think sometimes people can get nervous and maybe said it without meaning to, but you just kind of have to assume that people are trying to test your limits and see how much you know and go from there. So I'm very just strict. I'm polite, but at the same time, I know that, you know, when people tell me, oh, I've been in practice longer than you've been alive, things like that. You just kind of have to say, okay, well, you know, I understand that, but here's still my position and you just have to push because if not, people are going to just push you around and, and it's, it's improper and it's not okay that, that they get to act like that, but you just have to fight back and keep pushing and pushing. In interviewing a lot of millennials and even some uh, Zoomers for this podcast and other media, the word that is thrown around loosely is badass and chingones, okay? So <laughs> do you identify with that word or that phrase? my dad calls me chingona all the time when when I text him like anytime I feel scared of something my dad's the first person I text because my dad is so fearless and so confident I envy his confidence honestly my dad so anytime I text him I'm like dad I'm about to go on a deposition the other guy's a lot older than me it's I'm scared and then he's always like no mija tu eres una chingona like that's always what he tells me so that's like ingrained in me. You know, it's like what your parents tell you, like, you're a badass, like you could do this. You got it. So I identify it because that's what my dad calls me. <laughs> so while you may not be the Texas hammer, you're the Texas chingona. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do that. Maybe that's what I should do for my branding. I'm working on my marketing. So maybe my dad, will, love my dad will pitch me ideas all the time. He's a funny guy. There so you he's go. Like, look, he'll he'll skit, he'll do a skit and then tell me like this is what your next commercial should be like. He's and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so. Tell me, you literally are at the top of the world in Houston in the <laughs> Chase Towers because I've been to your office because I photographed uh, Tony Busby uh, <laughs> for a photo shoot of a magazine story I was doing on him. So what is it like to walk into that office in the morning? Talk to me about what that feels like for you. Okay. It is a lot of work. It's three elevators to get up there. And it's yes. hot up there. I hope Tony's hearing this. Yes. <laughs> we need some tinted windows because we're literally on the 75th floor. So I'm right next to the sun. Um, so it's hot and it's a lot of work to get there. But all jokes aside, it's for sure amazing and humbling. I want to take my parents there. So my mom was doing work. She's a refinery worker. She was in Pennsylvania. And she was laid off. So she's here in town. I want to take her to my office because uh, I want her to see like, this is what all your sacrifices have led to. Uh, I think that it's it's a very surreal thing to know where you can be with hard work, especially when you come from humble beginnings and from parents who like were illegal, but sacrificed so much for you to get there. I think it makes me just feel really, really good. Um, my parents are proud and that's like that's the number one thing in my life right like my driving force are my parents and 
because they've sacrificed so much. I can't imagine like leaving your home country to go somewhere else and start a whole new life, not speak the language, have to do manual labor and all these things, you know, and then for a better life. Right. And then their, their biggest thing is always like, you know, you're going to have all the opportunities that I didn't have. Like my mom always tells me your inheritance from mom and dad from us is that you're an American citizen. Like that's how much they think, like they think highly of being an American citizen. They're like, that's your inheritance because that means that you could do anything you want in the world if you're an American citizen. So have you ever suffered from the imposter syndrome? Oh, for sure. For sure. So I, um, before starting in personal injury, I worked at a big law firm and whenever I was in law school, I really didn't know how things worked. I didn't know like all the unspoken rules, et cetera. So to work for a big law firm, you have to graduate in the top of your class. You have to interview after your first year of law school, which is crazy to me. So these big law firms, they hire and recruit after the first year. So after the first year of law school, a lot of people already have their job three years ahead of time. Like let that sink in. That's insane to me. So you miss your chance. You miss your chance. I didn't know what a big law firm was. Like they, they call it big law. I had no idea what that was. I don't know that they paid crazy amounts of money. I, I, I didn't know that there was those distinctions. So by my second year, third year, then more counselors started talking to me. They're like, you have really good grades where you should try and like work big law. And I was like, okay, like I'm, I want to try. But by that point, like I said, they had already recruited. So you kind of have to hope that someone doesn't take the job or for some reason their offers rescinded, et cetera. So I sent, I think, like 80 applications to these big law firms, and I was rejected from all of them, even though I had a good grades, et cetera. But like I said, it was because they already had their people picked up from the first year. So it was one of those things that it was like very discouraging. But at the same time, this is what I want now. It's a goal. So I'm going to reach it. So even though I was you know, rejected all those times, I was like, OK, I have to strategize. I started networking, meeting people that were in these firms. and from that, once a position opened, then the, my friend, she gave my resume to the hiring partner and I was able to get into big law. So from there, I started a big law and I was so excited. But at the same time, once I got the offer, I told my, my career counselor, I was like, I kind of don't want to accept it because I don't know if I'm smart enough to work at a big law firm. And now I think back and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe that I really like felt that way, but I really did. Like I worked hard. Like I didn't get it when I was in law school, kept, you know, hustling, kept, you know, staying in contact, doing all those things. And then once I finally cracked in, which is almost impossible to do, and I got the offer, I really genuinely thought about rejecting the offer because I was like, I'm probably not smart enough. Like I'm going to go in there and they're going to figure me out and they're going to be like, oh yeah, she's, she's, she's not as smart. So I told her like, I kind of want to reject it. Like I, maybe I just wanted to prove to myself that I could get the offer. And now that I have, it's too real. Like, I don't want to do it. And she was like, absolutely not. Her name's Tiffany Tucker. She's a career counselor at U of H. I love her. She was like, you're smart enough. You're going to go in there and you're going to kill it. And I did, I went, I went in there, I was doing insurance coverage. And I remember my first year, the hiring partner was like, you are just extremely talented. You're, you're getting this and insurance coverage is super dry work. I mean, you're literally reading insurance policies, et cetera. So that helped me really battle the imposter syndrome because I thought, okay, this, this person who's a, a hiring partner, like you know, hired me here at this big law firm, they think I'm smart. And he's like, you're a good writer, et cetera. So I was like, okay, which is sad. Like it shouldn't take somebody reinforcing you for you to think, oh yeah, I'm good enough. But I think 
there's so many things that go into that that you think, I don't know. And then once I left the big law firm life, I went to personal injury and I still battle with that some, but it was much, much better. And it was one of those things where I thought, okay, well, I've done a, a really hard thing, like being a big law firm for, you know, over two years, et cetera. I can do this with, I've slowly battled and a lot of friends along the way have been like, yeah, you're smart. You're, you know, encouraging. And that's helped me, but I have for sure. And I still battle with imposter syndrome. You're listening to Latinos Who Thrive with special guest attorney Ruth Rivera. We'll be right back. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Do you want to stand out from the crowd and make a lasting impression? Then look no further. Introducing the ultimate game changer, the Escalante Public Speaking Mastery Course. In today's competitive world, effective communication is the key to success. Whether you're a seasoned professional or just starting out, the ability to speak confidently and persuasively is a game changer. I know, because I have lived through it. That's why the Public Speaking Mastery course is here to unlock your full potential. The comprehensive course is designed to transform your public speaking skills from good to extraordinary. I will be guiding you through a step-by-step -step process, helping you overcome stage fright, craft compelling messages, and deliver impactful presentations. When I took the Dale Carnegie School of Public Speaking and Human Relations, it changed my life and I will be able to help you do the same. My career in journalism and training and development was built on having the skills to be able to communicate to a team or thousands. I hold nothing back. I will give you all my trade secrets and how you can thrive and crush it. Imagine walking into a boardroom and captivating your audience with your powerful presence. Picture yourself confidently leading meetings, delivering persuasive pitches, and commanding attention in every interaction. With a public speaking mastery course, you'll be equipped with the skills to excel in any professional situation. If you're ready to take the step and supercharge your career, enroll in the Public Speaking Mastery course today. All the information and the cost is in the show notes. Don't let fear hold you back. Unlock your potential, elevate your career, and become a master of public speaking. Go to the show notes to register today to secure your spot in the next session of Public Speaking Mastery course. Public Speaking Mastery course, empowering professionals, transforming careers, Act now and make a lasting impression in every opportunity that comes your way. You will be glad you did and you will thrive for the rest of your life. We now return you to Latinos Who Thrive with our special guest, attorney Ruth Rivera. Talk to me in general terms about some of your peers that you either went to law school or you are acquaintances with and maybe you network with that you've been able to identify some of those same challenges that you went through that maybe we need to be, be having this conversation of why Latinos are talented enough and we will work twice as hard to to do the work of, of the average Anglo person, or we study harder than the average Anglo person. And there really is no basis. There really is no, no uh, foundation 
to feeling less than? Talk, talk in general terms about that. I think I've relied a lot on a, um, a friend. Her name's Andrea Barr. She's an attorney. She's Latina too. Um, and she's experienced this too. So as she's battled it, now she's at a place where she's like, oh no, like I shouldn't feel this way. And she's really instilled that in me, right? So now I'm at the point where I still battle with imposter syndrome, but not as much. And now anytime I meet a younger attorney, I instill that in them. I'm like, look, I've been through this. Don't sell yourself short. Like you're good enough. And you kind of put that pressure on that person so that they can take certain opportunities, et cetera. So Andrea was a huge part for me because she had already gone through it. And she's like, you're missing out on opportunities because you're not going for it. And you're smart enough. Like you're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it takes someone who's lived it and, and, and has like been like, no, like they figured it out. Like, oh, I'm not an imposter to really instill that in somebody younger. That's a lot of work though. And that, that's not like a, a good solution because you can't get to the masses. It's like, you have to be lucky enough to find someone who will be invested in your success and who will tell you, Hey, you are, you, you are good enough. You are smart enough. Like you should not feel that way. Um, and I think that that's a lot of people don't understand it. I don't really know where it stems from. I think for me, having parents who were illegal my most of my life, I think to me, I equated that with being less than like they're illegal. They're not, they're not American citizens. So they're uh, below the American Second class citizens. Yes, exactly. So I think to me that that was instilled in me, like maybe I'm not as good as somebody else because, you know, I felt like my parents were not, they, they missed out on a lot of opportunities. They weren't paid as much, all these different things that they had to accept. And I think those conversations aren't had. So I think I grew up thinking that same thing, right? And I had a hard time seeing, comparing myself with somebody who's white and thinking that I was smart enough or good enough. Like, how could that be if, kind of, if I grew up thinking like, or, or being normal to be treated differently, right? And that's because my parents were treated differently because they were illegal. They couldn't apply for the same jobs. They couldn't make the same money. They couldn't own a house. They couldn't do all these different things. I think that that's where it stems from for a lot of people for sure for me and I think that those conversations I think we need more mentorship in the community I think we need to speak about this issue because I think what I've noticed is that people think oh you have imposter syndrome that's you that's your confidence that's your problem and it's not I think that it's one of those things where life experiences and systemic you know different different regimes or different systems it contribute to it I don't know the solution aside from saying that I think we need to talk about it more and, and, and put the word out there like, hey, a lot of people feel this way and you shouldn't and, and just kind of share our experiences to show people. Who are the role models or authors that have influenced your mindset to, to really lean into life and into your field? Um, in general, so Serena Williams' dad, the tennis player, mm -hmm. I remember reading a book and I remember reading that he actually trained Serena and her sister, I forget her name. He trained them into the superstar tennis players that they are. And I remember reading that they grew up in, in you know, a sketchy part of, of town, that there was like gang ridden. And he struck a deal with the rival gangs and was like, hey, I'm going to be training my daughters here every day, blah, blah. So with both gangs, he's like, no, no violence, no fighting, no whatever, while we train. I don't know how he did it, but I read this in a book. Um, and I thought, whoa, that's amazing. That's like, that's, that's hunger right there. Like yeah. he, he knew he wanted his daughters to be amazing tennis players. So he would, and he learned how to train them in tennis through like books, through like different things. Like he himself took the time to do that. 
and then train them. And then because they were in a, in a part of town or the tennis court was in a part of town that was very dangerous, he somehow persuaded these gang members to be like, hey, stay away or, you know, we're going to be training here and did that. And I thought that's hunger, that's perseverance. That's, so to me, that's really inspiring. Like, you know, if, if you want something, even if it's, it seems impossible, you can do it. That, that, so to me, he is inspirational. Like, Did you watch the movie? No, I have not. I have oh, not. Oh, it's a must. It's a must. It's a must. I, I saw it, yeah. Uh, I need to. I read this in a book. Based on the book. And, and, and I think he was uh, a consultant to the movie. So truly inspirational. And again, it's, it's no different than, than uh, a minority uh, success story, rags to riches, feeling that you're good enough and that you're going to do whatever it takes to get there, to be at the table, to compete, to play. Yeah, to to me, like that's crazy. Like, you know, it's like they did way more than somebody else who just had private lessons, was safe in their backyard on the tennis court, whatever. Like they did all this work to me that just shows like they're willing to do whatever it takes. So he's a huge inspiration for me. Ever since I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Obviously, my boss, Tony Busby, and not saying that just because he's my boss, but I respect the fact that he is from comes from humble beginnings, right? His dad was a butcher. I think mom was a bus driver. And look at everything he's created. That's just mind boggling, like absolutely mind boggling, right? Because it's not as if he had every opportunity in the world or anything like that. He really is self-made. So to me, that's a huge point of respect. Um, and my parents. Plus, my he's parents. a former Marine, so he's got that kick-ass mindset that that he's going to kill he's, discipline he's going, like yeah yeah he'll email something at three four in the morning and I'm like oh my gosh like yeah. he's just non-stop uh so that's very inspirational and you know lastly obviously my parents my parents are just my driving force they're my inspiration like my dad is the one of the smartest people I know um like he competed nationally in Mexico for like a math competition like he's extremely smart like he really wanted to be in school to the point that in Mexico, you have to pay for, for even elementary school. And he would do the homework of three classmates and they would pay for his tuition. Like that's also like hunger, you know, like that's yeah. to me, that's amazing. Like he literally would do the homework of four kids himself and three. And that's how he was able to stay in school until like the sixth grade, I think. Um, so he's a huge, huge inspiration. He's also been through like so many different types of adversities and has just you know, always overcame them. So he's a huge inspiration. My mom too. My mom, she does manual labor at refineries. Uh, she does a man's job, really. Like there aren't that many women who work in refineries. She makes, um, what's it called? Uh, I can't remember the name, but she makes like, like, she'll like, literally she'll manually make different parts that are used at, at refineries. She's in the heat. She has to wear like all this, you know, all the safety stuff. She's, she's very safe. Yeah, yeah. She's in the machinist. Yeah. 100 yes she's a machinist and she she she's very she's very safety um oriented which is funny because I'm like good like I don't I don't want it to happen to you but she's also a huge inspiration because she's always tells me like there's nothing that you can't do as a woman so it's like I have both right like she's like a she's like people always tell me like they're not going to hire me or whatever because I'm a woman and there are just not that many women that work in refineries but I'm like I know how to do all this I've been doing it for years I'm better than most men at doing it like I'm more meticulous etc so she's a huge inspiration for me. Like she really proves to me like there's nothing that a woman can't do. So I think that's like right now, like the, those are the, the people that I drive from. I'm sure I'm missing some, but for Tell sure. us, Ruth, what to date, uh, what have been the biggest challenges that you have faced in your personal life? 
Um, I think, I think I've had to adapt my personality a lot to be an attorney. Okay. Um, What does that mean? So especially in personal injury, personal injury is, I think, very male dominated. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where you have to be very tough. You have to just be very confident. You have to just, you know, be very, all these things that I think I struggled a little bit with confidence before. And, and my parents were always like, be humble, be humble. And you have to find that line, right. In, 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 in your practice where you're humble, but you're also like, no, I know what the fuck I'm talking about. Right. So I think I've had to adapt my personality a lot. And I think one of the biggest challenges is that I've delayed things or missed opportunities because I've not believed that I could do it or I've been scared. Like I used to be a big scare, very risk averse, like, you know, kind of scared. And you just can't be that way in this, in this practice. So I've, I've, my personality, I think, has evolved a lot, which has been a challenge. Like it's taken a lot of like my parents also helping me evolve, my sister, my brother being like, no, you have to be this, you have to be that, et cetera. And you do have to change sometimes to be like, to, to have the skills or to really, you have the skills, but maybe to really sharpen them or show them those skills because they're necessary to thrive and to, to really succeed in certain professions. So I think one of the biggest challenges has been to adapt my personality for my profession. And I think another one has been, um, I think feeling like something wasn't right. So I've been at four different firms and this is my fourth one. And I think it's like, for whatever reason, I've gotten to a point where I've been like, this isn't where I, where I see myself growing. So I think it's hard to feel like, I don't, I think that there's a lot of things wrong in the industry, but it's hard to not feel like sometimes you're the problem, which is again, goes to like imposter syndrome and all these things like, right. Like you feel like something's wrong with me, but really I think that my, and I, I take a lot of advice and influence from my parents and talk to them about situations. They're like, no, like you shouldn't stand for that. You shouldn't do that, et cetera. So I think that that's been a big challenge to feel like, I don't know if I'm going to find my place. I know Tony Busby's animal spirit is <laughs> a shark because he yes. has sharks all over his office. He does. What is your animal spirit? Oh my gosh, I've never thought of this. What would be my animal spirit? Maybe a tiger. Tiger? Why? They're fierce. You know, they, they, they're fierce, they're fearless. Maybe a lion, something like that. But they're also cute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. But I like your dog. <laughs> oh yeah, Canelo. Canelo. Maybe Canelo should be my animal spirit. Actually, I know the podcast listeners can't see him, but you can. Tell us what kind of animal he is. Candelo, he's a multi-poo. Like in, okay. in Espanol. Okay. So I actually took him to daycare um, by my job, by my job, two jobs ago at Galleria. And they were doing like a, this is a whole thing. Like I'm a first time dog owner 2020. I didn't know that if you take your dog to daycare, they first have to do a diagnostic test to see all these, like he has to understand commands. It's like a child. It's like a human. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, in the daycare, they take it that seriously. They're like, yeah, we have to test his temperament and all these things. So I was like, okay. So then I drop off Canelo and they're like, does he know commands? Because he has to know three commands. And it's like, yeah. And they're like, okay, so we're going to test them, but you can't be there. And I was like, okay. And I see that the person who's telling me this, he's an African-American man. And I mean, I'm not trying to make assumptions, but I was like, but do you speak Spanish? And he looks at me, he's like, no. And I'm like, well, Canelo only understands Spanish. So he like starts cracking up and he's like, okay, well, you're going to have to teach me the command so that I can test your dog for them. And I was like, oh That's my God. 
Hashtag Mexican problems. So I'm there. I'm teaching the, yeah. the daycare person the commands in Spanish. And then he goes back and he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, Canelo understood all of them, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, you don't understand Spanish, but we're Here's a high powered that. attorney having to negotiate <laughs> the communication <laughs> with her dog because yeah. not uh, bilingual. All right. No, bilingual, yeah. But, but at that point, but right now we're working on it. So he knows yeah. his commands yeah. in English and in, in Spanish. Ruth, a big part of our listenership is Latinas. What advice would you give uh, to Latinas who aspire to get into the legal field? I would say if you are willing to work hard, there is literally nothing that you can't achieve. If you want to be, you know, Kim Og, if you want to be the Tony Busby, if you want to be at a big firm, you know, and, and run the Houston office, like I have really come to learn that, you know, and, and I've been in practice six years. I wish I would have known that, especially like, you know, in, in law school three years, 10 years ago, I wish I would have known that if you're willing to work hard, like there's literally nothing you can do. Cause I thought all these barriers, right? Like, oh, the, the imposter syndrome, the fact that I'm a woman, the fact that I'm a minority, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yes, they make things harder without a doubt but you can achieve them. Like I remember sitting first day of law school, looking around and I was like, okay, there's like three other Latinos in here. Uh, everybody else is white. And I was like, I'm, they, they probably grew up with English all around them. Like, you know, and, and maybe like, no people, I don't even know. I, I hadn't even met an, a single attorney while I, when I went to law school. So I, I put myself down to a certain extent. And I thought, oh, I'm probably going to get the lowest grades, whatever. I graduated like number 26 of my class at U of A. So like, through hard work, you can really achieve anything you want. So my advice would be- Let's like, put that in perspective. Number 26 out of how many students? 227. Yes. Yeah, so I was like number 50, in the top 15% of my law Correct, class. correct. Yeah, and, and, and I, you, I would have never, ever, ever like believed that had you told me that my first year because I looked around and I was like, everybody here is smarter than me. Yeah. But I was like, mi modo, like I, I just have to work hard. So I just, I was in the library all the time, you know, whatever. And then I got there. Right. And I was like, wow, like, okay, so if you work hard, even though like, you know, there's different circumstances that may affect it, like you really can. So that would be my thing. Like, believe me when I say, because I my mom would always say that if you work hard, you can achieve whatever you want. But when you're when your parents say it, it's kind of like, I don't know if it's true. They love me, so they're trying to encourage me. But I hope that somebody listening to me can really understand that, like, really, truly, like I've I've learned that. Like I, I when I see, like you said, what do you feel when you're on the 75th floor? That's what I understand now you're willing to work hard, like you're going to get to wherever you want. Like, I can't believe, I can't believe, like I, I had an interview, I had like two, three interviews with Tony and it's like, he's the best in the industry. And I impressed him. Like he told me, I impressed him. And I was like, that's crazy, crazy. But it's like, I showed him my numbers. I was like, here's how much, I was like, I've collected 8 million in a year and a half for my clients. I had all my numbers, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. So to me, it's like, okay, work hard and you will, you will get wherever you want to. And let's digress. Uh, only 2% of Latinos are lawyers uh, nationwide. So that means there's 98% opportunity for Latinos <laughs> to be in the legal field. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And we need more, you know, we need more because it's like, to give you another example, I remember yesterday, yesterday I spoke to one of my Latino clients who, you know, a lot of times it's like the same kind of profile. Like they, they may be like, they don't speak English or like they, they don't know technology. My mom doesn't know how to use a computer. She barely knows how to use her iPhone, et cetera. So he came from out of town to get a, a procedure and he didn't know how to use Uber. 
So I was on the phone with him and I'm like, okay, ex explain to him, like, vas a ver el carro, blah, blah, blah. We're going to send you a text, et cetera, et cetera. So he felt so, he's like, Ay, gracias, gracias, abogado. Like he didn't feel embarrassed that he didn't know. And I understood, like my mom, if, if somebody was trying to get, call my mom Uber, she'd be like, no, you're trying to kidnap me. What is this? Like, what is Uber? Like, I'm not going to get in a stranger's car. But it's like understanding that, like, you can really cater to your community. So I think more Latinos need to be out there. Like the 98% needs to be way lower because like, especially in Texas, like it's not representative at all. And I think it hurts the client to a certain extent because their comfort level isn't met. Maybe they can't communicate certain things. Like there's things that are lost in translation. There's so much that having a Latino lawyer could provide to that client that I think we just need more. We need more Latinos that want to go to Wall Street. This is a question for posterity. Where do you see yourself in 20 years? Oh my gosh. <laughs> in Tony Busby's office. <laughs> okay. Being your partner? No, I don't think he makes anybody partner, uh, okay. which I'm okay with. I don't care about the name title. I care about like the success and the money, right? It's like, if I work hard, I want the money to be representative of that. So I think, you know, all jokes aside, I see myself... Uh, you know, having a huge docket of my own, which I'm working towards with him. I told him I want, I want to run my own docket soon. And, you know, being able to just run with that and have my team and keep helping the community, right? For, for sure, I see personal injury um, in the future for me. I think that I, when I transitioned, it was the best thing I could have done because I think that I feel so passionate about what I do. Like helping other people who have been injured, Latino or not, to me, it's, it's so fulfilling. Like, I can't even explain it to you. I remember like the first client who I really helped like recover a huge amount, she had tripped and fell at, at a mall and there was three defendants and we settled with one out of the three. So there's still two defendants that they're going after. This was in my last firm. And with one of them, we settled for 1.1 million. And she works at a, at a auto parts store. She's like in uh -huh. her, she wasn't going to be able to like retire you know, she still had a mortgage and stuff. And to hear her say like, oh my gosh, like, thank you. Like this changed my life. And it was just, it made me emotional. I cried. Like I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm a lawyer who cries. Like, I'm just going to get that out there. Okay. Um, and I started crying because I was like, that's, I can't believe that through my work, I did like, she can now retire. She can now like enjoy her time with her grandkids, like be home, not have to work like until the last day, you know, like 40 hours a week, she can actually enjoy life. And that's just remarkable. And she deserves to, like she, she messed up her shoulder forever and other, her knee. So, you know, it's, it's bad because it's compensation for something that, you know, something bad happened to you, obviously, but at the same time, not everybody gets a chance of making that right. You know, sometimes there's no insurance or the person who did it, like, you know, they don't have money or whatever. So I think when there is that opportunity and you can help, it's life-changing for that person and it's life-changing for the attorney. So 20 years from now, I hope that I still feel the same way that I feel now about helping other people. Like, it's just so gratifying. And I hope I never forget that. Any final words? Uh, because we're going to have your contact information, Ruth, in the show notes. Any final message that you want to send to the greater Houston community uh, about representing them? Yeah, that I'm, um, I'm available to talk if, if, anybody has any questions or mentorship, if anybody wants to go to law school, thinking about it. So whether it's a potential client who's injured or et cetera, or someone who wants to go to law school, please reach out to me and please follow up. <laughs> That's the thing about lawyers. Like sometimes we get so caught up in doing things, doing that. Like if I don't answer, text me. If you email me and I don't reply, uh, 
email me again. It never bothers me when people follow up. I need it sometimes because life can get very hectic. So just reach out, whether it's questions about a case or whether it's questions about law school, about personal injury, about whatever. Uh, just feel free to reach out and follow up if I don't answer because I my heart wants to help. My time sometimes may make me forget or whatever time commitments, but please just, just reach out and I'll be happy to answer questions. We're going to have to leave it there. And that's it, my friend. Until next time, go out and thrive.